invite you to join me uh, in your Bibles in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. For those of you who have not been with us for a while, I just uh, want to give you a, a brief update on where we're at and what we're going to be going through. This morning, we'll begin a series in the, in the uh, 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and the series will last... Um, approximately nine weeks, possibly 10, and the purpose of the series will be to give us some insight into the resurrection, to uh, prepare us for um, living life with this uh, eternity as kind of the focus of the, at the forefront of our minds. If you've been here with us, you've noticed that there was a questionnaire sent out to the church and that questionnaire, the purpose of it is, is to get a, to get a, um, a measuring, uh, a way to measure where you're at now. And then we're going to do a similar questionnaire at the end of the series to see, to be able to measure what growth has taken place. And so if you did not receive the email, but you'd like to participate in that process, there's a, there's a printed versions of the questionnaire in the back, and you'd be welcome to take one of those and fill it out and hand it into Pastor Michael. They are um, anonymous, so no one knows who uh, you are. All we know is there'll be a number on there that will connect at the end so that we'll know which ones match up with. Make sure that you remember what your number is so that you can put it on the last questionnaire as well. But, but I have four goals. You, you guys know this is a part of my uh, project for my seminary uh, training, my um, uh, extended education that I've been involved in, and so I'm trying to measure. I'm trying to measure three things. At the end, I want to. I want to measure um, how the how this uh, study changes the way that you view the resurrection, and what are some things that you might uh, grow in your understanding of the resurrection, and then uh, measure how your priorities change based upon your perspective of the resurrection. And see if that's something that grows or declines. And then the last thing is just for me personally to be able to evaluate some of the things about my preaching that will help me uh, to grow as a preacher and to become a better um, communicator of the Word of God. And so that's the last part of that questionnaire. We want you to be totally honest in this questionnaire. Again, it's anonymous. But even if it wasn't anonymous, it, it, its its purpose is very clear and so we want to be able to see the good, the bad, and the ugly through this process. And um, the goal, the hope is, is that things will get better and that we'll be able to grow through this process. So, so please avail yourself to that information. Help us out by filling it out. And, and, then, and then you'll have to come throughout the process to be able to get a grasp on, on how things go. Um, if you're not planning on being here throughout the journey, then the questionnaire doesn't mean anything to you because you won't be able to fill out a matching questionnaire at the end to be able to tell how you've grown through the process. So it's really meant for those who are planning on being committed to the journey. And, and uh, so hopefully it will be helpful to uh, everyone who, who is involved and, and be helpful to me as a pastor as well. 
So with that being said, let's get, uh, let's get into it this morning. Let's start off, um, start off with a little story. Uh, when I was a, a young child, um, between the age of five and ten, like most children, I would ask my mom and dad a lot of questions. And uh, I don't, I, I'm not kidding when I say that I was kind of a master at asking questions. I could ask about a thousand questions a minute. And maybe you have a, a kid like that and you can kind of identify with somebody who likes to ask a lot of questions and get a lot of answers. The way my parents responded to my questioning was, was somewhat distinct and that my dad would often answer a few of my questions and then he would get frustrated with me and, and um, commence to tell me, stop asking so many questions. Maybe you can relate to that as well. My mom, on the other hand, she was super gracious and she would always have some kind of response for my question. There was never too many questions to ask my mom and uh, she would always, often have something to say that was helpful for me in the process my mom was one of those soft-hearted people, and my dad was a little bit more on the hard side, and they balanced each other out well, and so I'm thankful for both of them. When my mom would answer questions, she, would, uh, she had one answer that literally, I mean, if I ask a thousand questions, 900 of them would have this answer associated with them. And my mom would always say to us, or often say to us, or ask us this question in return, what eternal value does it have? She would always ask us that question, and anytime we would ask any question, she would just want us to think about what is the eternal value to your question? What, uh, what does it, or how does it relate to eternity? I believe that my mom's goal in asking this question was that she wanted us to determine the value of our question or the significance of our question and the significance of life based upon a lens of eternality versus temporality. She wanted us to look at life from the perspective of the next life, the future life, the life that takes place after we leave this earth versus the life that we experience while we're here. This line of thinking will be our theme and was the Apostle Paul's theme as he went through and wrote 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. The title of the series is Live, Life, and it's kind of an acronym, Life in View of Eternity. So that's an introduction for you. I want to just pray for a minute and then we'll walk through some some thoughts and get into the text a little bit this morning. We won't uh, do a lot of work in the text, but we'll do some work in the text this morning. We want to get some introduction things out of the way. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that we do have a hope that is beyond this life, that we have an uh, expectation and a confidence that there's more to come. And, uh, and that was, that's really where our, our, our hope lies. And I pray that this journey will help us to discover that and will help us to develop uh, some patterns of thinking for a living here on this earth. And I will give you the praise for and the honor in Christ's name. Amen. One of, the major, one of the major difficulties in the first century church and the reason the apostle Paul wrote this chapter 
was a growing error regarding what happens after we die. It is important to note that this error or this question that arose amongst the Corinthian church was not reflective of the church being rebellious, but rather it was a reflection of the church being confused about eternal things and also a reflection of the culture impacting the church. In other words, the culture had its way of pressing into the church certain philosophies or ways of thinking that influenced the, um, the way that the church would think and then would influence the way that the church would act. Now, the culture is very good at influencing the church in subtle ways and leading them down a path that um, at some point they look back at and say, how did we get here? And it's difficult to, uh, to understand how we got here because the process was so subtle. This process does not just relate to the church, but it relates to us personally as well. Many of us can look at our lives, and we can uh, see um, where we're at, and we often ask the question of, how did I get here? And we can't really answer the question, how we got there. And it's because Satan has subtly moved us down a path that's not healthy. In the church at Corinth, this is something that's very... um, uh, reflective of where they're at. The, the culture has impacted them in this thinking on eternal things, and it has changed the way that they focus. In Corinth, the Greek philosophers taught that material things were basically uh, inherently evil, and spiritual things were inherently good. Anything that was physical or material was, was bad, and everything that was spiritual and immaterial was basically good. And they considered the body to be something that was inherently bad and that it was a prison for the soul that was inherently good. Therefore, they concluded that everything material, including the body, was temporary and would ultimately one day cease to exist or after death it would, it would uh, no longer have an existence. And so death meant something that was final. It was the end for the body. There was no resurrection. There was no eternal life for the body. The spirit would go on to live, but the, but the body was, was done away with. It no longer existed. When the body died, what they taught was the soul was set free, and the soul would continue in a spiritual or what many of the Greek philosophers called it, a ghostly existence. And that ghostly existence could consist of good ghostly existences and bad ghostly existences. And we talk about those things even today. We talk about the idea of ghostly existences. And people, when other people die, they act as if their loved one is now a ghost who hovers around them and is with them all the time. This was a philosophy that the Greeks and the Romans promoted. The Romans promoted something a little bit different, but the Greeks and the Romans had combined together to make up a what we call a Greco-Roman philosophy that impacted the church and, and impacted really everybody within that culture. So the question is, why is it important for the Apostle Paul to to write an entire chapter on this error that has made its way into the church? First of all, The first reason why it was important for the Apostle Paul to deal with this was this teaching was not consistent with the Word of God. 
It was not consistent with Scripture. You see, the Bible teaches us that after death is the resurrection. It is a promise of Scripture. It is a way of bringing hope. We're reminded in John 11 when Jesus Christ went to Lazarus' funeral. He had been dead for four days, the Bible says, and he was stinking. In other words, his body was already in the process of decaying. He was in that uh, state where even the Greek philosophers would have said that his, his soul has finally left his body. He is, he is, he, once he entered that state of decay, they, they would teach that there was a, a period of time where they would, they would stay connected, but once that body started to decay, it was no longer connected to the soul. It was completely disconnected from the soul, and, 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 and it would start to decay and start to be, to be done away with. And so at this point, Lazarus, for those Greek philosophers that were struggling during this day, or the, even the church that was watching this event, they would say, there's no chance that Lazarus is going to live. And Jesus goes and he says to them, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he will, yet he will live. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise of scripture. This is, what we, this is what we build on. This is what we hope in. This is what we expect. This is why we live the way we live, why we do the things that we do. Jared read this morning, and I'm gonna just turn back over there because I felt like it was just such a, um, a powerful reflection of, of this passage of scripture where it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, provided that we are heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may one day be glorified with him. What he's doing is he's making a distinction between how we live this life and how we will live the next life. Where is our hope? What is our expectation in? What are we living for? What are we driving for? What are we hoping in? Surely it's not in this life. Because in this life, we're promised persecution and we're promised suffering and we're promised hardship because this life is is connected to sin and fallenness. He goes on to say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time or this present life are not to be compared or are not worth comparing with with the glory that is revealed to us. And then he says, for the creation waits with eager longing. I would just stop this morning and ask us the question, do we wait with eager longing for the next life? Are we waiting with eagerness for what is to come? Because that's what he says is the hope of of Christians. It's not that we are looking forward to great things in this life, great expectations in this life, great success in this life, great health in this life, great wealth in this life. It's not this life that Christians look forward to or hope in. It is the next life that is to come. The body, it says, the creation, 
waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And in other words, uh, that's a, a, a figure of speech to say it's waiting for our full conformity, our glorified body where we are in the image of Christ. And 1 John 3 tells us that when the Lord appears, we will know him because we will be like him. This is the hope that we have. This is what we look forward to and anticipate. So it's important, to, it's important for the Apostle Paul and for us to correct this line of thinking because it's not biblical. The Bible promises us and gives us hope that those who believe in Christ and follow him will be resurrected one day to eternal life or to everlasting life with God. But those who reject and refuse to follow Jesus Christ will be resurrected as well, but they will be resurrected to everlasting condemnation. John 5 and 28 and 29 says this, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all those who are in tombs, that means those who are dead, will hear his voice and come forth or come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is what the Lord promises us to expect when we die. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed to all men to die, and after this comes the judgment. Every man has an appointment with death, but death is not the end, death is the beginning. And he explains that to us here in this text. So why does the Apostle Paul find it important to correct this? Because number one, it's not biblical. It's not biblical to teach that the body dies and, and ceases to exist. That is not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is, is that the body will die and be resurrected. The second reason why it's important to correct this type of teaching is because people who embrace this philosophy give themselves over to the unrestrained gratification of the body. Let me say that again. The second reason it's important to correct this type of teaching is because people who embrace this philosophy give themselves over to unrestrained gratification of the body. It's a throwaway thing. I can live however I want in my body because ultimately it doesn't matter. It's just going to be thrown away. As long as I have some spiritual things in my life, then I can do whatever I want with my body because ultimately one day it's just going to be cast aside. Is that what the Bible teaches? No, it's not. They believe that what happens in the inherently evil body doesn't matter to the afterlife. We see this on full display in the immorality and the idolatry of the first century Greeks and Romans. You just do a little historical study on the Greeks and Romans in the first century and you will find great immorality and great idolatry. They had an idol, the Greeks and the Romans had an idol, get this, they had an idol for everything that humans need. They had a farming idol, a sports idol, they had water idols, they had everything that a man could need, they had an idol for it or they had a god for it. Now we have the same thing today, I might suggest, we just call it one God, but he is the same. He does everything for us that we need. He's all about us. 
Not about himself, not about his glory, not about his exaltation. He's all about us. And this is why we give ourselves over to immorality and, and idolatry is because we're, in, we're, we're, we're consumed with self. We see this on full display in the immorality and idolatry of the first century Greeks and Romans. And it seems to be making a strong comeback in modern culture. People living without considering eternity. You ask yourself the question, how many decisions do I make throughout the day where I think about the afterlife in those decisions? Where I think about my true hope is not in this life, but my true hope is in the next. This is what it means in the passage of Scripture in verse 32. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read a thought from it. This is what it means in 1 Corinthians 15, 32b, when it says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if your body isn't going to come up out of that grave, then just live life. Don't think, don't discern, don't uh, be critical of the decisions that you're making. Just live life. Just eat and drink and just do life. Because it really doesn't matter. What is interesting about this comment in this verse of Scripture is that it's exactly the same as a comment that's made to prophesy about the end times in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. He says this, For as in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they were just doing life. They didn't really think about anything from an eternal perspective. They just thought of everything from a temporary perspective. It's all going to get thrown into the garbage anyway. It doesn't really matter. False, amen? And then he says this, until they were drinking, eating, and drinking. In other words, they were just doing life. I don't think he's making an issue with eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. I think he's making an issue with them eating and drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage without thinking about an eternal thing. Right? This goes back to what we read in the, in, the, in the context where people were eating meats offered to idols, not thinking about somebody else that might worship that idol. It's, it's doing life without thinking about the consequences of life. He goes on at the end of that passage to say this, until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. That's a powerful warning to us. It's a powerful warning to us, and this is what he's dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's reminding them, he's refreshing their memory that, hey, remember this, your body is going to rise up. It is clear from the first 14 chapters that the impact of this error on the church, we see this error, we see the impact of this error all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, I believe. I believe the first 14 chapters clearly state how the, how the view of or the, the error in regards to the resurrection from the dead had impacted the church. The church was divided, the church was immoral, the church was selfish, 
The church was greedy, and the church was full of pride. All throughout 1 Corinthians is dealing with that. And really, you have bookmarks in 1 Corinthians from chapter 1 to chapter 15. You have bookmarks of the gospel. The problem was they didn't understand the gospel. The gospel was broken to them. They had a a flawed view of the gospel, which resulted in everything in the middle being broken as well. And you know something, folks? That's how it happens. That's how it happens. And the apostle Paul is not condemning them. He's teaching them. He's loving them, telling them the truth about the resurrection so as to fix the issue. It is clear from the first 14 chapters that this, impact, that this was impacting the church. So what, is the, what does the Apostle Paul do? Well, the Apostle Paul pepper, peppers instruction throughout the book and then concludes with the 15th chapter treatise on the resurrection of the body. And think about this statement. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 says this, flee sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And you whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your, in your body. And that's, this is not the only time. I mean, literally, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you will find it peppered all throughout. Use your body for the glory of God. It's not going to be thrown away. It's not going to be, it's not going to be discarded. Use your body for the glory of God. You're familiar with Romans 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your, that you present your bodies, a holy A holy what? A holy sacrifice to God. For this is pleasing or this is acceptable to him. I know I paraphrased the last part of that, but you know what the rest of it says. Our bodies are to be a sacrifice to God, not a dead sacrifice laying up on an altar, but a living sacrifice. We're to to live for the Lord with our bodies. That is the meaning of 1 Corinthians 15. That is why he writes this passage of Scripture out. This is a treatise, a treatise to give a full understanding to the church and to prove for them that the resurrection is real, that their body is going to raise from the dead, and in doing so, to convince the church to live life in view of eternity, to serve God with their bodies. Scripture teaches that the Christian is free from bondage to the temporary, and he is called to live with eternal purpose, confidence, and expectation. Let me say that again. Scripture teaches that Christians are free from the bondage to the temporary and are called to live, it's their purpose, to live with an eternal purpose, confidence, and expectation. And this is what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. With this in mind, the Apostle Paul starts his treatise by appealing to three evidences for the resurrection of the body. Like most of the Apostle Paul's letters, he believed by getting the people to have the right understanding of a truth that they would ultimately lead to the right actions. 
The Apostle Paul was always, you see it all throughout his letters where he would say, do you not understand? Do you not comprehend? I do not want you to think that way. Because he knew that by having a proper understanding of the truth in God's word, there would be the proper actions. And he also knew this, that the improper actions was often a result of what? It was often a result of improper understanding. And that's, a, that's a, what I would call, that's a salvific issue, right? If we believe wrong, that's a problem that's big. If we act wrong, you know, we deal with that because our salvation is based upon the work of Christ. But if our actions reflect what we believe, that's a problem. And, and the Bible does teach that. Let's read our text together. And I'm just going to deal with one issue with four thoughts from it this morning um, to, to, to lay a foundation, if you will. The, verse, the verses that we'll look at is verses one through four. It says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you receive and which, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you're taking notes, just write past, present, and future. The gospel effect is past, present, and future. That's what he's referring to here. I received it past, I now stand in the gospel present, and I have hope for the future in the gospel. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So there are three things or four things that I want to just share with you in regards to the gospel. The gospel is the first evidence that is presented here in this scripture for the resurrection of the dead. In other words, what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to drag the church back to the beginning stages of something that's very, very important to them, which is their salvation. And he's going to point out the fact that their salvation is built around the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. That's the foundation of it. The Bible even says in Hebrews 12 and verse number 2, that for the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross. In other words, Christ's endurance in this life, his, his suffering, his sacrifice, his willingness to be maligned, his willingness to be laughed at and spit upon and have his beard ripped from his face and to be beaten with a whip and to hang on a cross was all built around an, an, eternal, an eternal joy. It was all built around an eternal joy. And Jesus Christ is laid forth as the example to us of, what, of how we ought to be. As a matter of fact, in, in that verse, Hebrews 12 and verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. See, there's a lot of enduring that goes on in the Christian life, isn't there? There's a lot of challenges and difficulties and, 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 and heartaches and pain that we endure in the Christian life. Do we endure it because we think in this life it's going to get better? Is that why we endure it? Was Jesus Christ willing to endure all of his suffering thinking that, hey, maybe if I wake up tomorrow it's all going to get better? Or was Jesus Christ enduring knowing that only when he wakes up into eternity it will be better? The answer is the latter. 
Jesus knew that this life was going to be full of suffering. He laid that out for them. It is clear in Scripture. His confidence and his joy and his hope and his expectation was not in this life getting better. Jesus did not come to this earth, nor were we left on this earth so that we could live a a pleasure-filled life. We were left here so that we could suffer for the cause of Christ and share the gospel of that cause with other people. We could be like Christ, conformed into his image. He says in 1 Peter that he left us an example that we might know how we ought to live. And he talks completely about suffering. He left us here so that we might minister this gospel to other people. Jesus' life was completely a sacrifice for other people, and he has called us to that same sacrifice with a hope that one day the sacrifice will end, not in this life, but a hope that one day the sacrifice will end in the next life. You see, the issue is this. The gospel says we will suffer in this life, we will be glorified in the next That's what the gospel teaches. The content of the gospel is the first of the four. Remember this, the gospel is good news. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion, which simply means to be glad tidings. It's somebody, if you could ever picture a a newspaper boy back in the 20s that would go throughout the town and he would be like, uh, he would be heralding the, the front cover of the newspaper and trying to get people to buy the newspaper based upon that front cover. This is the idea of, a go- of the gospel or somebody who was a gospeler. Is there a herald of the good news of the gospel? They're a herald of the good news. It, it, uh, we see this in Romans 10 in verse 15. At the end of that verse, it's quoted from Isaiah 52 in verse 7. It says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The gospel is good news. Amen? Listen, let me say it again. The gospel is good news. Let me say this. The gospel is only good news if your hope is eternal. You see, what we've done is we've tried to make the gospel into good news for people who are hoping in this life. The gospel is not good news to people who have hopes in this life. Matter of fact, in this text it says, if your hope is in this life, then you're most to be pitied. If you are serving the Lord and you are hoping in this life, he says you're pitiable. Literally, it makes no sense that you would sacrifice and give up all of the pleasures of this life that the gospel demands of you to be a sacrifice for others, that you would give all of that up and your hope is still in this life. The gospel is only good news to those who have an eternal hope. It is not good news to those who are hoping in that which is temporary. The gospel teaches us that we're sinful, doesn't it? And the gospel offers us a life of persecution and self-denial. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, go buy a new car and a new house and make millions of dollars and just live it up. Is that what Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple? Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must learn to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
Does that sound like hope for this life? You see, that's why, listen to me, that's why in Romans 8, the apostle Paul is able to say that he groaned for the next life, that his body groaned. It's a, it's a strong word to mean an internal, just pleading, desirous, anxious for the next life. The apostle Paul understood this when he says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain He said, I would far rather depart from this life and be with my Lord than to stay here. But for your sake, I will stay here. What did the Apostle Paul understand that we don't understand? He understood that it wasn't about the pleasuring of self in this life. It was about sacrifice for others. The Apostles knew the gospel was good news not because it would make life better, but because it provided present purpose and future hope. When you think about the apostles, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Their lives were... The apostle Paul's life from an earthly perspective was a hundred times better before he got saved. He saw hope in eternal things because that's what the gospel gives us hope in. The Jews, when they were wandering in the wilderness, the promise of Canaan for them was good news, not because it made the wilderness easier, not because all of a sudden the wilderness became free of troubles. It made the wilderness easier because it provided purpose and a future hope. It gave them hope for Canaan which is a picture of heaven or eternal life. For us as believers, the gospel is good news, not because it makes life better, because it gives us a present purpose and a future hope. This is what is meant in verse number 19 when the scripture says, if our hope is only earthly, or if we hope only in this life, we are most to be pitied. And then Romans 8, 23 through 25, Jared read some of that. We groan to be set free. The gospel is good news. Number two, the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. You can't separate the two. The Bible says, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is structured in such a way as to to create an equality between lines one and three and two and four. Lines one and three are Jesus died for our sins and Jesus rose again the third day. Lines two and four are according are are and was buried and was seen. Lines one and three are equal. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. That is the gospel. It's interesting, in this context, no one doubted the fact that Jesus Christ had died. Matter of fact, it was a comfort to them to know that Jesus had died for their sins because then they felt like they were okay. The issue is, in the text, Jesus Christ does this with the scriptures or the apostle Paul says, listen, if you're strong on Jesus Christ dying, let me put on equal level the fact that he rose again. So grammatically, he throws that in there and says, these are the same. You can't separate the two. They are necessary. Romans 5 and verse 10 says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the son, much more now are we reconciled much more now 
that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life or his resurrection. The death and resurrection are equally important. The death and resurrection are equally impactful. Death provides payment for sin. Resurrection provides victory over sin. Death provides the forgiveness for sins. The resurrection provides righteousness that comes as a result of Christ's work. Jesus Christ died to pay for our sins. Jesus Christ rose again to make us righteous. They are equally important. The gospel would not be complete without the empty tomb. It is the empty tomb that proves to be hopeful, liberating, and victorious. The gospel, the content of the gospel is is a reason to trust that the resurrection is going to happen. The second thing is the consistency of the gospel. I I won't spend a lot of time on this, but the the scripture says uh, this to us. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, that you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. And he says at the end in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The second characteristic of the gospel that makes it a trustworthy evidence for the resurrection is its consistency. The gospel has never changed. For the apostle Paul, he has been absent from this church for four years. He is writing to them after being gone for four years, established them, and now he is writing to them to encourage them, and he says to them, the gospel has not changed. The gospel is consistent. After thousands of years of preaching and teaching, the gospel hasn't changed. We can read the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ all the way back in the book of Daniel, chapter 12 and verse 2, where it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We read that same phrase in John. John. The gospel transcends transcends time. It's not like philosophies. You wake up in the morning and you watch TV and you see the philosopher on TV or the politician saying something that he said the opposite about yesterday. That's not trustworthy. But when you wake up in the morning and you look into the word of God and you see that the gospel has never changed, you know that it is true. And it includes the death and resurrection of Christ. The gospel hasn't changed over time. The gospel hasn't changed over preachers. It's the same message whether Paul's preaching it, whether Jesus is preaching it, whether the apostles are preaching it, whether I'm preaching it this morning. He says, whoever is preaching it, whether it be I or they, so we preach and you believe. The gospel is consistent. It never changes. The death and resurrection of our Lord. The gospel hasn't changed by recipients. The apostle Paul wasn't a fool. He points out the fact that they had believed this gospel, that they had found strength in this gospel, and they had found hope for the future in this gospel. And the gospel that they believed in, found strength in, and hoped in, included the resurrection. The gospel that saved you included the resurrection of the dead. There's an empty tomb there. That's what makes us confident, right? Can you imagine Good Friday without Easter? There's not any hope in Good Friday without Easter. 
There must be a resurrection for there to be hope. Believers have always embraced the eternal hope as a not, the eternal hope of the resurrection as a non-negotiable in the gospel. And that's what they believed in, that's what they found strength in, and that's what they hoped in for eternity. The gospel has always built around a hope that was non-earthly. That was divine and eternal. It's always built around a hope that's not temporary, but it's forever. It's always built upon that hope. The third thing is the significance of the gospel. The Lord calls it the first importance. It means first in order, first in significance. If you're talking about uh, um, uh, a line of things, it would be at the front of the line, a, a stack of things, it would be at the top of the stack. The gospel is the most important evidence there is to the resurrection of Christ. It's in a class by itself. It is a first class truth. First in time, first in space, most important. It's the most important piece of literature that you can read. It's the most important truth that you can believe in. It's the most important art that you can look at. The gospel of Jesus Christ is most important, and it includes the resurrection of the body. Not just Jesus' resurrection. Yes, Jesus' resurrection as a foretaste of your resurrection. When God's people struggle, especially in this life and in this way, there is nothing more important than the gospel to remind them of the resurrection. The last thought this morning is the source of the gospel. The Apostle Paul points out very clearly, for I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received. What he is simply saying is, is the gospel message is a divine message. It's something that the Apostle Paul received from God. It wasn't his own manufacturing. It wasn't his own creation. God communicated the gospel to, to the Apostle Paul, to the apostles. He communicated it to them. They wrote it down in this book, and now we have it communicated to us through preaching and teaching. It was a message from God. And we can trust any message from God, right? It's been breathed out by him. Paul says in Galatians 1:12 for I do not receive it but I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel came from God it was a message delivered divinely to the apostles written down in the scriptures and communicated to us through preaching and meditation. The gospel is the first evidence that we will rise from the dead. It is the first evidence that there is a hope that is eternal and not else not earthly. The gospel never promises us earthly ease, comfort, or success. If you trust the gospel for these temporary things, possibly you need to evaluate your faith. My prayer this morning and throughout this study is that you will be convinced that there is a resurrection of the body from the dead and that your hope and my hope is truly an eternal one. And that it would admonish us to live our lives each day, to look at each decision that we make and each direction that we go in, to look at it through the lens of eternity and to serve the Lord with our bodies. I close with this scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 says this, 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. But the things that are not seen are eternal. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning that you um, thought it necessary and important to teach these, this church of Corinth about their resurrection and then to give us that message for now that we would be reminded of the fact that we will rise from this earth and from the grave and we will be changed and transformed for your glory pray that this reality will begin to change how we look at life, change how we make decisions, change how we interact with people, change how we process um, relationships and how we process conflict and how we process all of life, that we would be considerate and, and, and focused on the fact that it's longer than we think. Please uh, guide us through this journey, Lord. Help us for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.